0: Scripture lesson for this fourth Sunday in the season of Advent comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Listen now for God's word to you. In the time of King Herod after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, "Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage." When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another route. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Across the United States, there are towns with all sorts of interesting claims to fame. So for example, the town of Scottsboro, Alabama has the claim to fame of being the lost luggage capital of the world. (laughs) So luggage doesn't get claimed, gets lost at the airport, it gets sent to Scottsboro, Alabama where then it's sold at auction. And they have found some really valuable items lost in luggage like a 5.8 carat diamond ring how many of you ladies would have liked that, right? Um, and then some Egyptian artifacts. Um, not sure why someone had that in their luggage and why they didn't try to claim that. And then there's the, uh, the town of Alma, Arkansas, which is once home to the Allen Canning Company, which produced 65% of the world's canned spinach, um, So they uh, have a statue to the cartoon character Popeye in town and also his picture on the town water tower. And then there's the town of San Luis Obispo in California. Uh, They have a very interesting art installation known as Bubblegum Alley. Uh, It is 15 feet wide and 70 feet long of chewed bubblegum and here's what it looks like. Um, You ever find yourself there, make sure you're chewing gum and you can add a piece, you can be an artist, you can add your piece to the art installation. Um, it is the largest collection of chewed bubblegum in the world. <laughs> in case you're wondering <laughs> where the largest collection of chewed bubblegum in the world was. There it is. Um, how many Star Trek fans in here? Uh, well, the town of Riverside, Iowa, has a, a monument to the future birthplace of Captain Kirk, who is supposed to be born in that town in, the year, uh, in March 22nd, the year 2228, Um, Kansas City, Missouri, has an interesting claim to fame. In one of their art museums, they claim to have the finger of John the Baptist. So in case you wanted to see John the Baptist's finger, you can go to this museum. (laughs) I have serious questions about whether or not that's actually the finger of John the Baptist. (laughs) The town of Center, North Dakota, is so named because it is the geographical center of the North American continent. And you all have heard of Dublin, and you all have heard of Stonehenge. Well, in Dublin, Ohio, there is what's known as Cornhenge, a collection of human-sized white corn statues in honor of some farmer who, who lived there. And then there is my hometown of Libertyville, Illinois, like 30, 40 miles from downtown Chicago, that I heard a claim to fame growing up. Um, so if you uh, drive to through Libertyville, you're coming from the south. You'll drive down Milwaukee Avenue, which is sort of like Woodward here, maybe a little less busy, but it's kind of a, way, a point of reference for what the road is like. And if you're coming from the south, you'll eventually get onto what's known as the Libertyville Mile, which sounds super swanky, right? Um, Y'all have heard of the Magnificent Mile in Chicago with all the high-end shopping. Well, it's nothing like that. Um, <laughs> It is a mile-long stretch through Milwaukee Avenue of car dealership after car dealership after car dealership. And the claim that I heard growing up was that we had the most car dealerships per capita of anywhere in the world. Now, I had serious doubts about that claim being true. It sounded like something somebody just said. Like, one day they were driving down Milwaukee Avenue just annoyed with all the car dealerships and said, ''We had the most car dealerships per capita.'' Um, so I actually tried to, to verify it, and I have not been able to verify the veracity of that claim. But the point is, is we have a lot of car dealerships in Libertyville, Illinois, and uh, I even worked at one of those when I was home for the summer between semesters in college. Um, and what car dealerships are really good at, besides selling you a car, is that they are really good at producing a lot of light pollution at night. So they have those Big lights that illuminate their their lots to help you see the car that you can that you want to buy, to buy that Lexus for your spouse. Like the Christmas commercials, right? Put in a nice little bow on it. Um, And so um, I grew up. My parents' house was just uh, maybe less than a mile from where the Libertyville Mile began, and my bedroom window, the window that my brother and I shared throughout our childhood, faced towards the Libertyville Mile. And so I would look out my bedroom window at night into the night sky, and I could never see the stars. It was always this kind of greenish haze. And so I remember, I've I've learned, because that was the the view I had growing up, I've learned to appreciate those moments when I'm in a place where I can look up into the night sky and to see the stars. I I remember the first time, at least the first time I remember seeing the the stars in the night sky on a clear night away from the, the lights of the Libertyville Mile. I was on a A youth trip with my church, and we were at my youth pastor's farm in Kentucky in rural Kentucky. And I remember looking out at the night sky one time and being mesmerized by how many stars there were. Because I didn't get to see those a lot growing up in the suburbs and with the light pollution of the swanky Libertyville Mile. And so I've I've learned to appreciate those moments. And so when I lived in rural Missouri, when I was a pastor there for a few years, I, I loved the clear nights when I would let the dog out. For the last time, I would always look up into the night sky and see more stars than I had ever knew were out there, um, stars that light has been coming towards us for billions of years, some, some stars that are, have been shining since the beginning of the universe, that light has been coming towards us. Some, some of that light is coming from stars that have long ago uh, um, gone extinct, and yet their light is still shining towards us. I've always been sort of captivated by the stars because they tell this enormous, magnificent story, um, a story of a universe that is bigger than we can comprehend. We can only see so far into the universe, and then there's a a point beyond which we can't see, and there's this beautiful story that's being written. The stars, to me, are are an incredibly spiritual thing. And so is it any wonder, then, that human beings, since probably the beginning of time, have been gazing up into the night sky, trying to figure out what God is up to in the world. We meet some stargazers uh, this morning in our final Sunday in Advent. Uh, We have called them the wise men, or according to one of my seminary professors, the wise guys. um, we, uh, We call them kings. You know that famous song of this time of year, we three kings of Orient are... We've given them stories and histories, we've given them sainthood, we've given them names. They're often known as Balthazar of Arabia, Melchior of Persia, and Gaspar of India. But of course, all of this is just the product of Christian imagination. We don't know their names, Uh, we don't know how many there were. We often associate the number three with them because of the three gifts that they bring. Uh, But some parts of Eastern Christianity have as many as 12 wise men that come. And they're not kings either. They are magi. That's what Matthew tells us, that they're magi. These are people who are practitioners of another religion, a religion known as Zoroastrianism, a religion that uh, was, at the time, the chief religion of uh, Persia, ancient Persia, a religion that Judaism comes in contact with within within its history, Um, still a religion that's practiced today, but in a minority context within modern-day Iran. And um, they are foreigners, that they are uh, court officials of the Persian emperor, that they are his spiritual guides and sages and philosophers. They are professional seekers, always searching and looking for what God is up to in the world. And they do that by, by looking into the stars. And we can ask the question what is it that they were seeking? You know, Zoroastrianism has their own prophecies of a savior who would come into the world, and so maybe they're searching for a savior. Maybe they're looking for the one who will come and bring peace into the world, who will beat swords and spears into plowshares and pruning hooks. Maybe they're looking for the one who will judge with justice and equity for the poor. Maybe they're looking for the one who will come and bring a sense of calm to their anxious and restless hearts. But whatever it is that they're searching for, One day or one evening, they're looking at the night sky, and they see a star rising, and it grabs their attention. And sort of how I imagine it is, it's not the the bright star kind of in the artistic depictions that we have of the uh, the nativity stories, but it's a, a star that nevertheless they gravitate towards, that it tells them something that what they're searching for is in that direction. And so they set out on a journey following that star, but that journey will cause them to leave behind their sort of status positions in the court of the Persian emperor, that they will have to cross the boundary of the Roman Empire, uh, an empire that Persia and Rome didn't always get along. They often fought with each other. So they will become vulnerable strangers in a foreign land, searching for what they're looking for. And they follow that star and they find up, finally end up in Jerusalem a place that you would expect to find a king, right? Signs of power and opulence everywhere. The massive building projects of Herod the Great are all over the city. And and they, they gain an audience with Herod, and they make their way into his courtroom, and they say, we've been searching for the one who is to be born king of the Jews. Where can we find him? Now, we've called them the wise men, But I'm not sure how wise it is to show up in the court of another king and say, hey, where's the real king? (laughs) Especially a king that is known for being a tyrant, a king who was known for being incredibly, incredibly paranoid. Uh, Nobody escaped his paranoia, not his children, not his wives, not his family members. He was known for executing them when he felt like they were a threat to his power. Um, the, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, on hearing the way that Herod ruled his kingdom, uh, said that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. He was, we've, we've called him Herod the Great. That's how history remembers him. But the truth is he was a small, weak, fearful man, that he ruled by fear. And that fear was contagious. Did you catch it in the story? It's not just that that when Herod hears the the Magi's question that he's afraid, it says all of Jerusalem with him was afraid. This fear had spread all across the city. I'm not sure if anyone in Jerusalem at that time spent time looking into the stars to try and figure out what God was up to in the world, but I wonder if they did, if they could have even seen the stars anyway. I wonder if their fear clouded their vision, if it looked kind of like that green haze Out of my childhood bedroom window. Not only is Herod sort of ruthless, he's also cunning. He could have killed those magi right on the spot for asking such a question, but if there's someone who is being born who might claim to be the king of the Jews, a a title that Herod himself took on, then he needed to make sure that they were taken care of. And so he calls in his own spiritual advisors and has them searching through the prophets trying to figure out where is this child being born? And they come across a little prophecy and it says that the child is to be born in Bethlehem, the little cow town of Bethlehem, just nine miles away. The Magi were there just nine miles off. And so Herod relays this message to the Magi and says, when you find this child... Let me know so I can also go and pay him honor. Of course, we know that Herod has much more sinister plans, right? And so the Magi set out. They head out of the city of power, and they head out towards the margins, out towards this the little town of Bethlehem. And, and as they go, I wonder if they discussed their interaction with Herod. I wonder if they discussed the things that they were searching and seeking. What was the, the star guiding them towards? What were they looking for? And then finally they end up at the home of Mary and Joseph. Not at a manger, not at a stable. Um, I know we love the nativity image, but it's really it's us putting the the stories from Luke and Matthew together. And in Matthew's story, they show up at the home of Mary and Joseph because they already live in Bethlehem at the time. They're not taking the journey there. Sorry, just a little point of, we got a little biblical critique right there. Um, (laughs) And they show up at the home and they see Mary holding Jesus and there is the light that they were seeking. They, they see in Jesus, in his vulnerable and fragile frame, the love and the grace of God illuminating out. They hear in his laughter the joy that, ha- that God has for all of God's children. That they hear in his cries the cries of all who are longing for justice and peace in the world. And in that moment, they realize that calm and peace are possible that what they were searching for in the light was right there in front of them. And so when they leave, the light that they were seeking now lived and dwelled within each and every one of them, that the journey takes a different course from there on out, not of them looking into the stars, searching for what God is up to, but a journey within, a journey of realizing the light that dwells within each and every one of them. So we've been asking this question throughout the season of Advent. What do we want for Christmas besides a hippopotamus and our two front teeth? (laughs) And we've been answering by saying, all I want for Christmas is. But here on this last Sunday of Advent, I want to ask this question slightly differently. What are you searching for? What are you seeking in this season? As we begin the final leg of this journey towards Bethlehem, as we prepare ourselves to, to, to see to behold the Christ child in the manger on Saturday, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What star in heaven are you chasing? Are you looking for a sense of peace and calm to know where you belong, to know that you are loved? Are you, are you seeking to, to make the world a better place? Are, Are you seeking to kind of get a a respite from the busyness and the chaos that this season can sometimes bring? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? And as we prepare to make this final leg, I hope that when you come to the manger on Saturday night, that you find what you are looking for, that the light that you are seeking will dwell within you from that moment, and that like the magi, you can begin the next leg of that journey. Not one of seeking the light somewhere out there, but of knowing that the light of God's love and grace and goodness dwells within each and every one of you. May we continue this journey towards Bethlehem and may we find the light in the world. Amen.